You are listening to the Dylan Taunts Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is It About Bob Dylan? Today, we're talking to Dr. Keith Nainby. Keith is a professor of communication studies at California State University, Stanislaus. There, his primary academic interests include pedagogy, philosophy, and performance. Keith currently focuses on the cultural context of musical performances, such as listener engagements and fan communities. He has published a book and four essays with a fifth forthcoming on Bob Dylan, most with co-author John M. Radosta. His book on Taylor Swift and Swifty Identities is also forthcoming. So Keith, welcome to the Dylan Tots. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. I'm really excited to talk today. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you here. So what is it about Bob Dylan? I mean, that's that's the question, right? Um, I would say, uh, you know, one of the quirky things for me as somebody who's really interested in communication and philosophizing about communication in strange ways is that um, I feel like people, artists are mo perhaps the most obvious example, but people generally, we speak into the world and as we do so, we narrow what's possible, right? This conversation is going to unfold between you and me in the ways it's going to unfold because of what each of us decides to say and decides to focus on. And I think that's an interesting thing, right? We, we change the world as we speak into it. But most of the time that becomes foreclosure in some way or another. For most songwriters in my experience who I've listened to, for most poets I read, for most authors of fiction or nonfiction I read, as our knowledge or understanding deepens, it forecloses other possibilities around it. Um, and what I really admire most about Dylan and what keeps drawing me back to Dylan all the time is, in my experience, uniquely, when Dylan speaks, multiple possibilities arise rather than being foreclosed. So we deepen in meaning, we understand the world differently as speech always helps us do, but somehow Dylan finds a way to always complicate every phrase and to never foreclose. And I find that fascinating. That's really interesting. I, I love that idea that he complicates things. He problematizes. Um, he just find he, he contains multitudes and he projects multitudes, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so yeah. you mentioned to me about your, your double belatedness <laughs> in terms of becoming a Dylan fan. So talk about your, your Dylan journey. Um, what, you know, what, what is I call it your, your Dylan Rubicon. When did you cross that Dylan Rubicon, that, that point of no return? Well, and it relates to the double for me because I feel like I crossed that Dylan Rubicon in my own listening life and my own writing life like two different times. Um, so first I went to college as somebody who'd grown up on classic rock radio. You know, I thought, okay, all the greats of the 60s and, and 70s I've inherited as somebody born in 1970. Um, my mom was actually born in 1950 in the New York area and was one of those screaming teens when the Beatles got off that plane. And so, you know, that's, that's sort of, it felt like an inheritance to me musically. And I knew sort of intellectually that Dylan must be a part of that. But the thing about classic rock radio in the 80s, at least as the as the uh, kind of programming was then, like a Rolling Stone was on the radio. And maybe if you had a DJ who wanted to be a little bit edgy, uh, Rainy Day Women would be on, right? Like, and that's it. I didn't hear any other Dylan. I just knew his name. And uh, it's 12 and 35, right? I'm always afraid I'm going to get the numbers wrong. But it's Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35, right? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, and so I went to college and John, the person with whom I've written a lot of my Dylan scholarship collaboratively, uh, 
he was someone I lived with in my dorm first year. And he and another close friend of his, uh, they were sophomores, had been passionate Dylan fans their entire teenage lives and had been to several shows by that point already and had bonded, cemented their friendship over Dylan. Um, and John sort of reached out to me to connect over music and shared Dylan with me. Uh, and it's interesting because it wasn't unidirectional. You know, like he had, he had come up in the 80s listening to like OMD and Psychedelic Furs and stuff like that. That was his, his uh, teenage life. And I'd been listening to Iron Maiden, you know, and, and stuff like this. And so he didn't find the music that I brought to the table very interesting. Um, but he shared a copy, you know, it's cassette tapes in those days. So he hands me a copy of Bringing It All Back Home to listen to on my own, you know, cassette Walkman thing. And it's starting on side B. I don't even hear the first side. So the first thing I hear is Mr. Tambourine Man. And of course, I recognize the song and I'm excited to actually listen to it intentionally for the first time. But by the time I got through Gates of Eden, like I was overwhelmed. I'm like, this is metal. Like, this is not what I expected out of Bob Dylan, right? And so the, the last three tracks on that, uh, on that side B of that cassette just overwhelmed me. Uh, and I started taking a serious interest in Dylan and um, fell in love with a lot of the work then. Um, so that was my first crossing of the Dylan Rubicon. Um, and it was great for me because it was, it was part of a you know, rapid period of growth in all kinds of ways as a listener, as a writer, as a thinker, because it was college. Um, so it was great and chance to form bonds with folks, but I didn't see any shows. You know, I didn't have any money. I was a college student. I don't know how they had money to see Dylan, but I didn't have money to see Dylan. Um, but then it's another 15 years for me where I'm in my, in the job I'm in now. Uh, when I took this job, I, I set myself up for an hour and 45 minute each way commute. It's not that long now. I've moved a little bit closer, but I'm in the car for three and a half hours a day, my first year in this job here in Stanislaus State. And what, how I always handle things is I listen to music. I listen to music for three or four hours a day anyway, out of my own personal interest. I'll just move it to the car. And that way the commute doesn't feel so daunting to me. Um, so what I started to do was listen a little more with a little greater care and intentionality to music I'd been sort of carrying around for decades and listening to in a kind of occasional way. Um, and that's when my focus on Dylan really sharpened up. And I started to spend time on the Expecting Rain site and I started to really, you know, start to do what I guess I could call now but wouldn't have called then research like when I when I go in depth I go in depth and so you know I'm listening to bootlegs and I'm reading about his life and reading reading all the biographies I can I'm reading Shelton and I'm reading Scaduto and I'm reading it all and. Um, and so that was sort of the that's the big crossing. And that was not until the fall of 2005, basically, when I started driving for this job in August of 2005, I didn't listen to any other music for a year than Dylan. I mean, I stopped listening to anything else. Um, and of course, we know, you know, if you're if you're a part of the community that's checking out this this event here, um, that's easy to do to listen to nothing but Dylan for a year in 2005, 2006, you're not even started yet. Like you're just, you're just getting your feet wet. Um, and so I would, I, that's my best answer for the Rubicon question. It's a good answer. <laughs> and you got your feet wet in the Rubicon. All right. So <laughs> I, I, I gotta, I gotta follow with something you said early on there about Dylan being metal. And I'm particularly interested in that because in philosophy of modern song, the chapter on the Osborne brothers song, Ruby, um, he talks about their 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 sort of this bluegrass bland, bands uh, <laughs> in terms of metal, in terms of heavy yeah. metal. So yeah. explain. 
Well, and that's one of my favorite essays in that book. I love that one. But, um, you know, another another way that I would connect to this isn't just through bluegrass and what Dylan says uh, about the Osbournes. But for me, it's like I listen to classical music a lot. And uh, I have friends in my life who share popular music interests with me who reach out to me because they see me as more knowledgeable than them about some classical listening. And I'm not a musician myself. I play a little bit of piano. So I come at all of this from a listener perspective. Um, but, you know, one of the things I frequently tell folks in my life who listen to hard music, hard popular music, like hard rock metal, is Shostakovich is more metal than anyone. Shostakovich makes, you know, Iron Maiden seem soft. Like it's, um, and so I really, I agree with Dylan and his, his, his approach to the world where like, to me, what's metal is something that uh, combines a sort of, um, a sort of rigorous engagement of the world, like a kind of uncompromising stance that's, you know, I believe in invitational rhetoric. I think many of our relationships are enhanced by a kind of invitational stance where we seek dialogue and we seek to collaborate. But some circumstances aren't meant for that. Some circumstances are meant for a kind of confrontational stance, a kind of confrontational rhetoric. And I think for me, that's one thing that metal is, is it's a confrontational stance that a song might take. Um, and another one is just sort of being willing to um, lean all the way into whatever the music does. Right, like whatever the music's tropes are, whatever the history of the style or the instrumentation, the arrangement, like turning it up to 11, right? To steal from Spinal Tap. Like to me, what's metal is, if you got a song that's based in a complex set of drum rhythms, right? Like they shouldn't be in the background. Like the rhythms should dominate the song. And for me, that's, that's metal also, right? Like kind of leaning all the way in musically. And so, you know, I think Gates of Eden is an excellent example of that, right? Like it's, it's a confrontational stance and the phrasing of that song is a leaning all the way in. Like just, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to have a cadence as a, as a singer. It feels like Dylan suggesting I'm going to see where that cadence takes us when it's in its most extreme form in a song like Gates of Eden. And so I don't know, that's, that's what metal means to me. So, okay, let, let's, let's talk about Dylan as a singer. You're, you're, you have a particular interest in Dylan's voice and Dylan's voice, love it, leave it, whatever. Uh, <laughs> is is the one of the most talked about aspects of dylan not always fruitfully so talk about his voice well you know i mean i think that many of us as, as passionate bobcats have kind of come to this place where we recognize there's a difference between how people understand what singing is and what voices are for um and i think you know i certainly can't take credit for originating this idea but i'm also not sure that i can cite anyone like many of us who, who identify as, as passionate fans of Bob, I think recognize, well, people who, we all have these folks in our lives, our loved ones, our close friends who are like, I don't know how you could listen to that guy sing. And for me, it's what you've just said when you say that is that you've indicated you and I have a different understanding of what the purpose of singing is, um, which is that, you know, you are you trying to sound like Mel Torme? Are you trying to sound like, you know, um, Luciano Pavarotti? Like, are you hoping to make a beautiful sound so that the voice becomes a kind of instrument? That's a way to sing. And I love Pavarotti, right? I mean, I have no objection to that, but it's not the only way to sing. And that often, you know, Pavarotti himself does this. Sometimes the voice shapes meaning. The words themselves are encoded in different ways with meaning it's shaded in different ways. And that's also what singing is, right? And, uh, 
and I don't know that I've ever heard anyone do that better than Dylan. Like his, his voice is extraordinary to me because it's not pretty in any sort of traditional sense, but it's always, the words are always challenged by being sung by Dylan. And especially since they're his own words, I think that that's twice fascinating. I um just heard Dylan's tribute to Tony Bennett at his 90th birthday party. A friend of mine sent it to me. And I, I hadn't heard that, you know, since I first heard it. And it it is, I mean, I'm sorry. That voice is beautiful. <laughs> I, I believe you. I it's absolutely believe you. As anything, right. you know, Bob Rod did or, or Bennett in many ways. And I'm, I'm actually, I love Tony Bennett. My dad was a, a big nice. Tony Bennett fan. So I grew up with that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's an interesting thing, the, the Dylan voice thing. Now, you you wrote a book with, with um, John Modesto about performance, right, in Dylan. Right. And so I, I want you to talk a little bit about that book. Just tell us a little bit about it. But um, start with telling us what what is performance studies? So performance studies, as I understand it, it's a, it's a blend of disciplines, my own discipline, which is communication, which often focuses on speech and oration, um, and theater, which focuses, of course, traditionally on like, you know, dramatic texts and the aesthetic performances of dramatic texts. Um, but also there are, you know, people who declaim poetry in high school and win awards for it, right? All of those sorts of, of threads blend in uh, to, to performance studies as a discipline, which is focused on how do we make meaning in our bodies? So it's sort of similar to what I said about Dylan, but the entire body's part of it, right? Like a very obvious example of what performance studies illuminates. There's this new movie Barbie out right now. And, and you know, that movie is about the ways in which we not only dress ourselves in certain ways, but we adopt certain mannerisms and certain ways of communicating that are like, you know, garb of gender, cloaks of gender. And that's the sort of thing we performance studies scholars are really interested in that goes way beyond just gender. Like, how do we how do we cloak ourselves in the garb of professionalism? How do we cloak ourselves in the garb of being a student in ways that can enable a teacher to embrace or reject us and our efforts? Right. That's the kind of thing that performance studies folks are really interested in. So the idea is aesthetic and aestheticized performances that happen on stage. They happen in everyday life, too with different standards and different expectations that have impact on our lives. Um, so that that's how I understand performance studies, but why I thought it might be an especially interesting thing for John and I to do um, to explore Dylan through that lens is, you know, he's worked in multiple media. So he's not only a songwriter, he paints, he in, gets involved heavily in productions of films and in, you know, even the touring show like Rolling Thunder Review, which is a kind of, you know, he adopts this fascinating Harlequin tradition in his in his grease paint on his face. And uh, all of those are sort of ways of engaging aesthetic traditions that that shape meaning by, you know, using our bodies to do something right. Um, and I think that you know, because of the thing about the voice, especially, I'm always really interested in how Dylan finds that, you know, the same words or similar words can be inflected so differently based on context. Um, of course, there's the obvious way in which he changes songs over time as he reperforms them. Um, simple twist of fate is almost unrecognizable sometimes from performance to performance. Uh, and, and for me, that's a performance studies question, right? Like, wait, it's the same text. It's the same written text. It's the same set of chords. And, you know, certainly sometimes the music changes, um, but often it's not so much the changing of the music as the changing of 
rhythm and tempo, which is, of course, a part of the music, but especially the changing of how he sings and the changing of the context of the song itself within a broader um, concert experience or a broader era, you know, like in Simple Twist and Fate, Simple Twist of Fate, you can think of something like, you know, the, um, the, the tour in 1978 for Street Legal, where there's a certain kind of a vibe that's happening, right? And I mean, I, I don't know that the Budokan package is the best way to capture that, but there's a vibe, right? It's got that jazziness with all the horns, but it's also, it's a little bit metal. It's got that kind of insistent quality, especially in his phrasing um, that you hear in a song like, um, like, where are you tonight, right? This kind of confrontational stance again. And, and I think a song like Simple Twist of Fate changes, right, from something that's wistful to something that captures like a, like a, it's not so much a gotcha as it is like an analysis of the relationship between history and the present. I don't know, that sounds very aggrandizing, but that, that's kind of what comes to mind, right? And all of that to me is performance studies helps us think about these kinds of questions. Yeah, I love that. And some of those performances of Twist of Fate, um, especially around uh, 18, 19, just, it, just astonishing. You hear some of the bootlegs, some of the concerts I went to. Um, nice. They were, uh, to me, in many ways, they were, they were well, one of the high points because that was also when he, he was doing uh, an incredible version of Not Dark Yet. Um, and, and then the, the, and then he did the, the, he, the for, for the first time, he, considerably altered like a rolling stone and i think <laughs> very positive ways too um That's really crazy. really great performances in, in that period and lots of those changes and now even with rough and rowdy ways you know you hear the bootlegs you go to the performances and boy is it 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 changes a lot um quite a bit and yeah in really interesting ways I mean, you you really say it when you talk about the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour. I, I've only seen Dylan five times, which makes me pale in comparison to my co-author who's seen him 50 times. Um, but the Rough and Rowdy Ways show is my favorite of the five. And and I, I really appreciate you going to that example. Like he, those songs, of course, are so interesting in their effort to kind of like deal with the with the impact of history and the ways that we kind of create and live through legends. And I mean, that show was amazing. I mean, incandescent. And in my, I saw him in, uh, here in, in the Bay area in, uh, in Oakland at the Fox theater. And I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And so many songs completely changed even from that album itself, like from the rough and ready ways studio rough and rowdy ways studio versions to the live versions were completely different, completely transformed. Yeah, I, I um, I've, I've talked about this in earlier uh, broadcasts, but I saw him three times on that tour in mm. uh, in uh, Port Chester outside in, in Westchester County here in New York. I saw him in mm. Philly, and I saw him in D.C. Oh. And um, it was each one was was different. They, they each mm. had their own uniqueness. They each had their own. They, the songs weren't altered, but there was a definite different feel at each and it wasn't just the crowd or the venue the way he performed um sometimes he was pushing things rushing them sometimes he was holding back something it was really really just fascinating just to see those differences and they were tremendous shows all three of them were just yeah i'm so glad you saw those i haven't listened to the to the recording but i've heard that i've heard legends about that washington dc show in particular yeah, it was it was good. I, you know, of the three though, I I think I liked the the Port Chester. Of course, I was also yeah. in that one. I had um 
I was right up against the stage. So oh, no. <laughs> standing room only, which I had never got before. I'm still paying off the debt for that, but <laughs> it was totally worth it. And my generous wife was with me. So <laughs> oh, that's terrific. That was great. Speaking of which, let's just get right to it. Recently, there have been rumors floating around that um, this is it for Dylan in terms of touring, that this, you know, he's put dates on the tour poster, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, and you know, it's like it's like watching the Kremlin in the eighties, right? You know, it's you got to read this who's standing next to the premiere and all that, <laughs> figure out you know what's going on. But you know, the people noted that right off the bat, and they thought it was just such an oddity. But no one even you know, you're barely hearing me saying, well, maybe this is a way of saying this is the end. But now mm-hmm. people are saying perhaps this really is the end, and I don't know what that's based on or if that's real. But there will be an end. Right, you know, right, right. sad to say there, there's always an end and you know that's the human experience and bob dylan's human and so um what do you think the implications of that are for for fans for researchers you know you study uh, dylan's performance what what are, what's the impact of the end of touring what will that be like well you know it's interesting because i mean i think that one of the things i hope is that both for passionate listeners for fans and also for scholars that will be able to engage when there is an end, whenever that end comes, we'll be able to engage in ways that I think Dylan himself has clearly expressed he would hope that we would do, which is not to treat his his touring life as a museum piece, right, as something that has happened. Um, and I think that to me, the work lends itself to that for the reasons that um, that I was thinking of earlier in terms of what is it about Dylan, right? Like, we have recordings, of course, we have, you know, commercially issued and, and many, many uncommercially issued um, to work from, even after he stops touring, you know, to love as listeners to write about and talk about. But what I love about that is they're not only one thing, right? Like, you know, when I get around to listening to the Rough and Rowdy Ways Washington DC show, or if I can find the Port Chester show, like that's one time won't be enough one time can't possibly foreclose what there is to gain from that and i think you know in the same way that so many people celebrate dylan's touring because he transforms the songs because there are ways in which they're reshaped i think that doesn't go away because he stops touring right i mean that he's left something with us even leaving aside his studio work and his writing work as what he wants to be as a song and dance man he's left us with a legacy that's not easy to digest or put in a museum or resolve meaning in. And I think that to me, on some level, that that forestalls an end, right? Even when he's not touring, that that forestalls an end to the touring Dylan on some level. So the performance goes on. That's what I think. Yeah, the performance goes on beyond the performance and not just not just because we have a lot of recordings. <laughs> right, right, right. I think you're right about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like that. So Speaking of your scholarship, so you're you're a, a contributor in the forthcoming book on um, Dylan's set list that's been edited by uh, fellow Dylan Tots, uh, Aaron Callahan and Court Carney. Could you give us a little preview of that? that? That's supposed to be coming out in the fall. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're in there, too, and I can't wait to read your chapter. But um, so so what John and I focus on is uh, two, two we, we kind of compare and com- I mean, compare and contrast seems we, we use as endpoints to promote dialogue two concerts, the Halloween concert from 1964, um, which is released in the live bootleg series as volume six, and the, um, 
the so-called Royal Albert Hall show, which was actually a Manchester Free Trade Hall live bootleg series volume four. So we're working with commercial releases in both cases. And what we try to do is to focus on Dylan's engagement practices with the audience, especially through the set list. So, for example, in Halloween 64, he's coming off a huge writing period and he's integrating some of those new songs into his show and discarding many of the songs that have made his name for him in the sort of so-called folk protest movement. Um, and, and he's clearly self-conscious about that, right? There, there are things we write about that have to do with how he signals to the audience that he's aware that the set list is perhaps not what they expect and titles change, right? And he makes wisecracks about things that don't really seem wisecracky, like the Davy Moore song, the Who Killed Davy Moore song. Um, so, so then we juxtapose that with an analysis of the Notorious Judas show to think about how, again, the set list doesn't simply embrace songs from 1965 and 1966, but has some earlier work. And what kind of work are those earlier songs doing in an electrified band environment and in the confrontational, again, engagement with the crowd at Manchester? Um, and so that's what our chapter is about. This is going to be a tremendous book. It's got some really good writers in there. Um, I'm looking forward to what you and John have done. It's going to, it's going to be a really, a really special publication when it comes out. And as poor Carney says, priced affordably for no one. <laughs> so. Welcome to academic publishing, but yes, yeah, indeed. There you go. <laughs> I feel really lucky. I agree with your assessment. I mean, I got to meet so many of you folks at the, at the, at the conference in June. And I mean, the, it, to a person i'm like wow so you're going to include a chapter in this book also like i can't wait to see what you have to say i mean so many great folks yeah they really marshaled a lot of really good good names in them i'm uh, happy to be in there with them yeah and the, the world of bob dylan conference is where i met you in, in tulsa um you know we, we can talk a little bit about that but i've talked about that at some length already so i want to kind of find out a little bit more about you gotcha what are you working on now dylan wise or what are you contemplating so um I'm not sure where I'll go next in terms of Dylan. I mean, I am interested because of the performance studies angle in some of those questions around touring, right? So, I mean, I wasn't, I, I really appreciate your turning my thinking to the end, wherever it comes of touring. But um, I guess the set list chapter is a good example of like, I think as somebody who listens so much to studio work, right? It's just what I'm often doing. Dylan is an artist among all other artists who takes me out of that, right? And really kind of embodies what he professes, which is, you know, I'm a performer, I'm a performing artist. Um, and so I'm not sure, you know, to use Rick's Visions of Sin intro, I'm not sure yet what the right handle to take hold of the bundle is, but I'm really interested in um, just exploring more deeply how Dylan kind of relates to, to audiences. I mean, like, there's, you know, I'm a passionate Miles Davis fan, right? And there are all these stories of him, especially with audiences of particular demographics. He'll he'll turn his back on the audience or leave the stage, right? And and sort of engage the audience. And of course, there's the Judas concert, right? From Dylan's perspective. And so it opens up really interesting questions about what's the relationship between performer and audience at various points in Dylan's career. And I mean, that's the sort of thing I always find myself drawn to, like, except for the Judas guy. I know that we know who he is now. I forget what his name is, but that person, right? It's so rare for the audience to really, in my experience anyway, 
um, become a central part of how we understand Dylan's work as a performer. But, you know, if we take him seriously and he's a song and dance man, you're not a song and dance man unless someone is listening to the songs and is witnessing the dance at a minimum, if not dancing themselves. And so who are we and what what do we contribute to the process for Dylan, for, you know, one another? I mean, I'm really interested in those kinds of questions. Yeah, that's, uh, that's some interesting stuff. The, the, um, it, it, just early today, just in, inject some, something I'm working on right now. I, I write a, a, a weekly blog and podcast, um, for professionally, um, as a leadership coach. And I was working on a piece this week about communication. And it was something a friend of mine said to me, a very wise man said, um, something about how the audience actually has all the power. Once mm-hmm. you put the message out there, it's mm-hmm. gone, right? The audience, and I never really thought of it that way. And in, in leadership coaching, you think a lot about the empowerment of the audience by the leader, and the leader has to do active listening and all this. But the idea that once it's out there, you don't control it, right? Um, which is right. really kind of in, in a Dylan context is very, very interesting. Right? Absolutely. And I, one of the things I admire about Dylan, and, and I think about most Bobcats, is we embrace that, right? Like, I mean, I think one of the things that Dylan beautifully does in that Song and Dance Man interview is get at what you're saying, which is, you know, at a certain point, it's not my work anymore. It's work, right? But it's not, it's not like foreclosed, right? It's not, you know, it's not something he gets to say what happens with. And he mocks the reporters for, for first of all, presuming that they get to say what happens with it. But then the other, the layer underneath of presuming that he gets to say how his work is understood. And he just, you know, he's just making fun of them the whole time for believing either one of those things. So I think Dylan's right there with you in terms yeah. of that question of you don't have the message is not yours anymore once it's put out. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm interpreting you right, maybe I'm misinterpreting you on purpose because I have all the power. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you have that, you have that right as the, as the listener. Yeah, absolutely. Heady stuff. Heady stuff. By the way, I want to give, offer a little disclaimer. I just remembered you, you mentioned before um, the, the question about the end. I'm going to attribute that to Erin Callahan. Um, oh, okay. This is a truly collaborative site. And she, she threw me a couple good ideas for questions. So what about, um, I think this is one of hers too. What about your use of Dylan in teaching? Have you, have you taught Dylan? I have done some. I mean, he's such a terrific person to, uh, to use as an exemplar when questions come up about, for example, the use of history, right? Like, um, it must be great to be in a position like courts, for example, where you're, you've got a broad set of scholarship on history that you can draw from that's focused on American historical, you know, questions. And someone like Dylan, who's, you know, I did an event here on my campus where um, a few of us were talking through our scholarship and a history professor who's a passionate Dylan fan here on campus. He's one of the people I connect with about Dylan. He asked about using Dylan in teaching. And so my response to him comes to mind here. Like, I mean, the whole goal, I think, for, you know, in a in a world where Elon Musk exists, right? Like the, the, the goal I feel like for history curriculum, but for all curriculum at this level in college and high school is how do we, how do we continue to help young people whose sensibilities are shaped by digital engagement and by anything, any fact can be looked up on Google, right? How, do, how, do, how does history come to life? How does the legacy that we inherit 
of anything, right? Of any disciplinary area or ways to, way of thinking. How do how do these things become not Google facts? How do they become you know living ways that shape our lives and that we can reshape? And I think I can't imagine a better example for that than Dylan. So like, I like to play Dylan songs when part of what we're trying to do is to think about like, you know, how do you write in a way that invites readers to make sense of meaning? I teach a writing class. How do we invite, I've used him in that class before, because if the question on the table is, okay, is writing something you do to get an A from a teacher? For almost everybody in college, the answer is predominantly yes. Or how do we write in a way that doesn't just try to get access to an instrumental goal? Like, you know, a, a letter to your grandma convincing her she should include you in your, her will, or a letter to your boss explaining why you should be promoted, right? These kinds of instrumental goals suggest that the writing itself is a linear tool, right? It's a hammer. Um, and I'm always striving in writing-based classes to, to ask the question, how can writing be a practice, be a way of making sense of the world in the same way that looking or listening are or smelling? And I mean, Dylan is just optimal for illustrating that to me. Like, you know, it's not that he sat down and imagined a story about, you know, somewhere vaguely in the Southwest, somebody being confronted by some set of powers they don't understand. No, like a song like Senor is a living process of engaging the world, right? It's not, it's not reporting even on something he imagined. Like you can hear in every phrase that it's the, it's the writing that is the process, that is the goal, that is the, you know, it's not a hammer. He didn't pick up a songwriting practice as a hammer so he could communicate that song to us. And so I love to use Dylan in that way as a teacher. Yeah, I love that. what a great example too, Senor, in that context. Incredible. I've listened to that song hundreds of times. I have absolutely no idea what's happening in no, it. And no. it's one of my favorite songs. <laughs> See, I know everything is happening. It. I just can't figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so do the students get it? I mean, it's like anything else, right? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But here's, here's the one fun thing about that. Students of different demographic spaces always surprise me with how they're familiar with Dylan. Right. So, I mean, I had an older student, um, different than me demographically in multiple ways, apart from being an older woman. Like at the time I was teaching her, she was 20 years older than me. And she had a really powerful connection to Dylan as a civil rights figure. Right. And that mattered a lot to her. And then I'll have a student who's 20 years younger than me, who seems to be sort of not very um, excited about the things that are happening in the class, let's say. And it'll turn out that they see Dylan as, you know, a smart ass in a way that they admire, right? Like as somebody who disrupts authority and, and, and kind of is willing to put his finger in the eye of the culture in ways that are interesting to them. And all these different ways that, that Dylan sort of, not just as a singer songwriter and, and, and person in the world, but as, a, as an image, right? Dylan as text people engage it still in 2023 people engage the dylan text in really fascinating ways as a teacher that i have found like they think they know who he is they don't really or they know much more about him than i thought they did or some combination of those things i ask this a lot not maybe not every time but i, I try to ask people you're a dylan scholar but you're also a passionate dylan fan you've seen him five <laughs> times right uh, <laughs> And how do you reconcile those two things or do you need to? 
Is that even necessary? You know, I, the best way I know how to answer this is I took a risk in our in our book, uh, the book that John and I co-authored um, on Dylan and performance. I, I sort of stuck my neck out a little bit, even in terms of my relationship with John, because he's, um, you know, he's an English prof uh, teacher in high school, but he definitely writes, in my experience, the way that English scholars write. So he's deeply connected to close readings of the text. And so everything is evidence-based for him. And it's as much as, you know, it would be for a scientist, right? My brother-in-law is an astronomer. He's not going to speculate about how X-ray binary systems interact. He's going to gain evidence about it. And, and I find that John writes that way about ideas. He, he wants concrete evidence. He wants to always go to the text. And I found myself sharpened up as a Dylan fan in that way by making sure that I was always in all of the chapters that I was working on primarily and that my responses to John and his chapters that he was working on primarily, that I could stay yoked to evidence and not be too speculative and not be. But the final chapter in the book is an autoethnography because by coincidence, um, right when Dylan was following his evangelical interests, so was my mother, who was a Jewish kid from New York, born in 1950. Now she's living in Redneck, Florida in the late 70s. And we don't have any money. You know, I mean, I'll just tell you everything. This is the thing about being in, in a situation like this with me. We're, we're taking welfare. We're, we're taking food stamps. We're barely scraping by. She's a single mom. And she's sending money on the weekly to Jim Baker's PTL Club. And to me, that's an inconsistent, cognitively dissonant practice, as much as Dylan, the icon of anti-authoritarianism, becoming a converted evangelical is cognitively dissonant. And so I couldn't let go the chronological alignment there. And I wrote the final chapter entirely speculatively. speculatively. It's, a, it's an autoethnography that links evangelical texts and Dylan's evangelical process to my mom's and my own as a young kid being influenced by that. And the reviewer, um, I think I've eventually sussed out who it is, but it's a, it's a published Dylan scholar. The reviewer in commenting on the book for the publisher said, when I started reading that chapter, it felt out of place. I really wasn't sure what I thought of it. And I don't know that all readers will know what to make of it. But in the end, I really liked it. And so that felt like a success to me, reconciling my fandom with my scholarship. That that chapter worked for the, for the person who was an established Dylan scholar reviewing it very rigorously. So that felt good to me. So let's talk about other music. You mentioned Miles Davis. Um, when, I, when I read your biography, I mentioned Taylor Swift. <laughs> what music do you listen to? And, and how does it relate to Dylan, if at all? Um, I mean, I, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music, uh, certainly just the, you know, mentioning Shostakovich and you mentioning Taylor Swift and me mentioning Miles Davis, like this is a range of musical interests that I have. Music's always been really important to me, um, at all stages of my life, even as who that means has changed. Um, but I think, I think what matters to me is a kind of committedness, right? Like, I mean, so much of music is seen by folks to me, who I think of as not so passionately connected to music, like when do they listen to music on their earbuds when working out? And that's pretty much it, right? This is a gloss of a stereotype of a kind of listener. I see those folks as differently connected to music than I am. And I see myself as connected because I'm really interested in commitment, right? Like an artist who's really interested in choosing a set of practices the same way visual artists sometimes do and sticking with them 
right? Like the impressionists are like, well, I'm not going to rest until I kind of explore what this kind of brushstroke and this kind of visual perspective gives me. And like, I'm really drawn to that in music. So another example I haven't mentioned is Nick Cave. He strikes me as deeply committed in a way similar to Dylan um, or Chostakovich or Miles Davis, um, uh, more lighthearted music that I also find deeply committed artistic practice would be like XTC, for example. Um, you know, I find that it's, the songs are sometimes light and poppy, but you can tell that there's a kind of seriousness of purpose there, right? And I steal that phrase from my favorite film critic, Robin Wood, um, who looks at films that way. So that's, you know, those are some other artists I listen to. And I guess that feels like the guiding thing for me, but it's what changed my mind about Taylor Swift, right? I mean, I, I began two years ago with a set of prejudices, um, that are still not entirely dislodged for me about Nashville country pop and about contemporary pop artists whose music is sort of commercially often consumed by younger listeners um, in like dance contexts or things, parties. And Taylor Swift intersects with both of those communities. And I sort of began with the assumption that whether I liked the music or disliked it, its purpose, its aim, musically is not a name I'm very interested in, right? Selling records or promoting dancing or promoting something, right? That I'm not interested in. Taylor Swift is probably the most committed artist I can name. Like, I think by comparison, Dylan is a little bit casual and cavalier about his art compared to Taylor Swift. And I have a great deal of admiration for that. So it's something that stands out to me. Once I took the time to get to know the work, rather than allowing it to be filtered through my unwarranted stereotypes. Yeah, isn't she working on a project where she's basically re-recording all her albums? That's right, yeah. And I mean, there's a commercial argument to that, right? That, that's a compelling one. But there's also a you know, cultural argument about it's a, it's, a, it's a stand in favor of musicians. It's a stand in favor, especially of women musicians. And so, you know, I think all of that stuff is cool, but... I mean, even just as a songwriter and as a person who engages her audience, she's, I mean, I don't think that there's a difference in seriousness of purpose between her and Isaac Newton. Like, I mean, she, she's not kidding around and it's, it's an impressive thing to see. Yeah, that is. Uh, by the way, I have to thank you for bringing up Miles Davis because you've, you've kept my long-standing record of somehow jazz coming up in every one of these conversations nice unbroken for quite some time now. <laughs> nice i love it i should mention in terms of of metal in particular in one of my earliest experiences connecting with a professional jazz musician here in oakland um a friend of mine who's also a professional jazz musician introduced me to this fellow he's a drummer and he wanted to know a little bit about my listening history. And I told him that when I moved away from high school into college, the first jazz that I really deeply engaged was John Coltrane. And he said, oh, that makes perfect sense to me. The move from Iron Maiden to John Coltrane is entirely sensible in terms to him musically, he said, in terms of like a certain kind of intensity, like he immediately got it. Like John Coltrane is metal. Like, I mean, he, he, he went there faster than I could. Yeah, I like that. That was yeah, fun. I, I think I moved from the Beatles to John Coltrane myself. Oh, nice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I like the late Beatles better and the late John Coltrane. Well, <laughs> Keith, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for, for, for joining me and for contributing to the Dylan taunts. 
Thanks so much for having me. This is really terrific. I love this, and I'm hoping we can keep the dialogue going even when we're not being recorded. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Ponds Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dylan Ponds sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dylan Ponds on social media.